Welcome in to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We are one week into the Major League season, and we've got double A, high A, and low A opening tonight. Baseball will be played at all levels for the first time in 2023. It's a very exciting day for us here at Baseball America, and I know for baseball fans nationwide, we're here to break it all down for you today. And to do that, I am joined by my friend and colleague, Jeff Ponce. Jeff, first and foremost... How you feeling? Double A, high, low A getting underway today. We're going to have full season baseball at every level. Yeah, once I get off of here, I'm going to uh, get ready and uh, head over to the park. And I'm going to end up seeing uh, Bowie against uh, Hartford tonight. So I'll get some Zach Veen looks, Heston Kerstad, Kobe Mayo. I think uh, Justin Armbruster is starting for that team. I'll get Cade Povich later in the week. So um, there's some players to look forward to. I'm excited to get back to regular minor league games you know the backfields are fun and all but uh at times it's a bit much it's nice to be able to focus in tunnel vision on one game watch what's going on there and uh you know sort of i guess get some get some feedback from scouts and folks that are at these games in terms of uh what's happening on the field now that games actually matter yeah focusing on one game in a real stadium where innings aren't being rolled is a lot easier than trying to look at what's happening on fields one two three and four simultaneously where innings are being rolled and sometimes the guys you don't know who's actually on the field because rosters are not readily available makes it a little a uh, little more hectic to say the least i'll be out at lake elsinore for uh visalia versus lake elsinore here in the cal league drew jones professional debut so it'll be good to just see him on the field and see how he's looking and some other talented players are going to be on the field as well sammy zavala with the padres a talented young outfielder so we'll have you covered from coast to coast here uh, as uh, double a and below gets underway jeff before we dive into the minor league season ahead and what we're looking forward to now that every level will be playing triple a has been playing since march 31st i want to start with What we've seen so far through the first week of the Major League season, opening day was one week ago. And the biggest story, we all knew it coming in. We all expected it. And and now we're seeing it play out in practice was the pitch clock. Uh, We saw it in the minor leagues. Really, I saw it the last two years because it was in the Cal League, then Low A West in 2021. It expanded Mm -hmm. to all levels in 2022. And we saw what effect it had there. You could theorize what it would look like in the major leagues, but you never really know until it's put into practice. And so far, we're seeing game times being cut down even more. Uh, In the minor leagues, we saw game times cut down an average of 25, 26 minutes. That was the general range. Um, So far through the first week of the major league season, again, small sample, but interesting nonetheless. The average time of a nine in a game is two hours and 36 minutes. That's through games of Wednesday. Last year's average time of a nine-inning game was three hours and six minutes. That was over the course of the entire season. So, so far this year, again, small sample size caveat, but nonetheless, the average nine-inning game is taking 30 minutes less than an average nine-inning game took throughout last year. Jeff, what are your overall thoughts on the pitch clock so far? What I just stated, do you consider it good, bad? Are you neutral about it? How do you kind of see what this has done to the game thus far through the season. Again, very, very early on. Sure. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of old. So I'm old enough to remember when games weren't these like four or five hour odysseys sometimes that I was talking about it with another sort of old timer, one of my neighbors who's like in the 60s. And it was it felt like after those like Red Sox Yankees battles in like the early 2000s, game times progressively got more and more out of whack. We're, we're probably not going to see games like that with this. I think it's back to a pace that's much easier for people to follow and tune into. Um, it keeps your attention, which I think is a good thing sometimes when you have these guys that were taking, you know, 20, 25 seconds at times, 30 seconds in between pitches. It really crushed the game flow, the amount of uh, step outs by batters, some of that stuff that, you know, I understand from a player perspective was a positive. But I think just from an entertainment value perspective and just the game flow, being able to sit there and watch a baseball game and stay tuned in, it's a much better product. I think that we've seen fans across the board say as such. And I think people just sort of forget that, you know, this what we've seen in the last 10 years wasn't typical in the previous 60. You know, the game moved a little bit quicker than it did. 
Um, it's we're sort of back to that where there is some pace. And I know this is something that I think Jim Callis had actually mentioned to me when I was uh, on the backfields with him. But this is a, a, a rule in terms of like, you know, how long you have to throw the ball that's been on the books for a while. It just hasn't necessarily been readily enforced. Um, so I think that there is a lot of sort of pushback on it from from certain corners of the Internet, whatever you want to say. And I don't necessarily feel that it's all that warranted. You know, I think that it is getting back to more traditionally what we grew up watching and a game that moves a little bit quicker is probably pretty good because it's one of the big sort of complaints about baseball from time to time. And the action is 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 simply when the when the pitcher throws the ball, that's when things happen. Right. Whether it's a hit, a strikeout, you know, walk, whatever it might be. We need that play to be initiated. And the longer it takes for that to happen, the more it drags on. I think it's some of the same things with like the, the throws, the first base. These are things that fans from that are sitting in the stands or watching at home generally moan and groan over. So you know, I think it's much ado about nothing to an extent, but I think it is a good development for the game. Um, and one rule change that I, I didn't have really any, any issues with my, myself on a personal level. I need to correct something I said earlier. So the average game time in 2022 was three hours and six minutes, but that was for all games. The average time of a nine inning game was actually three hours and three minutes. So it's been 27 minutes shorter. Yeah, I definitely agree that the trend that baseball was going in, which was longer game times with less action, was a bad trend for the future of the game. At the end of the day, we need to remember baseball and all sports are an entertainment product. And it's not like we're going back to the 1970s and 80s here to look at sub three hour game times. If you go back to 2011, yeah. 2012, 2013, they were sub three hours. You know, again, 2008, 2009, 2010, they're all in that 250, 251 range. And I think we can generally agree that shorter game times where more action is happening creates a more entertaining product for fans of all stripes. I will say, having you know gone out and covered some big league games, I was at opening day at Dodger Stadium. When I when I watched this in the minors, it never felt rushed. It was like, okay, good pace. You know, this is cruising along. I will mm-hmm. say there are times things have felt a little bit rushed in the majors, just watching it in action. Um, I, I think particularly what has jumped out to me is, you know, batters needing to be in the box, heads up, attentive to the pitcher at eight seconds. There have been a few times where that, that just feels a little rushed when there's nobody on because sometimes you do need to kind of step out, take a breath, settle yourself a little bit, think about, you know, what did I just see? What do I think he's going to do next? And then, Oh crap, I got to get back in. And, and there've been a lot of close calls. And we did just see the first ejection for a uh, called strike on a batter, Manny Machado with the Padres. And this was going to happen at some point. It was a matter of when it was a matter of who we saw it happen in the minors early Guy's not in the box on time, gets an automatic strike called on, and he doesn't like it. He argues about it and he gets tossed. That that was going to happen at some point. It was just, again, a matter of when, where, and who. And, and it happened. And I think if baseball made a slight adjustment and just made it seven seconds, just give me that extra second, because there's been a lot of at-bats where I'm seeing guys, they're getting in right at eight seconds or they're cutting it close. Um, there are times umpires, I think, have been a little bit quick on the draw there, calling the mm-hmm. automatic strike. So I think that would be one slight tweak I would make. The other thing I've noticed, and this is totally anecdotal, I do not have the data to back this up, and maybe it's just the games I've been watching. It seems like we're seeing a lot more early countouts. Batters seem to be swinging more, not necessarily in a strategic sense of, okay, you know, I'm hunting fastball, first pitch, but just everything, you know, all kinds of pitches, all situations. And, and I'm noticing things can feel a little rushed in terms of, oh, we've got a five-pitch inning, a seven-pitch inning, and it's not because you know, the pitcher necessarily hit all his spots, that that feeling of being rushed, I think, is kind of seeping into batters' mentalities of, okay, I'm feeling rushed. I got to get going. I got to get going. And I talked to a few guys about this. They said they were feeling that a little bit in the beginning. I'll be curious to see how that evens out over the course of the season. Um, but that is one thing I've, I've noticed. And the last thing I'll say is there's definitely a mental adjustment here. Um, just for example, on Sunday, uh, I had the A's-Angels game on. Was watching it. My daughter woke up from a nap, uh, woke her up, changed her, fed her, etc. Uh, it was a 110 start. Looked at the clock, 328. And I was like, okay, you know, it's probably like the seventh inning or so. I went over and it was the bottom of the ninth. I was like, whoa, there's definitely a little bit of a mental adjustment to your expectations of, 
what inning a game is going to be in, depending on the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's been good overall, but I would like to see a few tweaks. And and I did not feel this way in the minors. I have felt at times things are feeling a little rushed in the majors. I feel like I never noticed the, you know, nine seconds batter has to be in the box and attentive thing in the minors, like the entire season watching, however <laughs> many, you know, hundred plus games and going to you know, around that too. I, I, I never noticed it. I, you know, I noticed guys that at times were stepping out too late timeouts that got called. I don't think I really saw that all that frequently. Um, I do think that's something that they could probably tweak. It's been a, you know, a slight adjustment. We've seen it here and there. It was a big issue. Uh, the one time it came up in you know the beginning of spring training in that Braves Red Sox game, yeah. it's kind of stupid um, because and, and I had a pitcher actually say this to me as well, where it's kind of like, isn't the penalty for the guy not being ready when he's in the box is like he takes a strike, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like it, it's one of those things where it seems like we're kind of forcing the issue a little bit too much there because it's 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 a matter of like you know, there's a certain set of time, get the ball to the plate, be ready to hit, you know. Um, so I, I do, I do feel like you're right on that. That's one thing that can probably be tweaked a little bit, depending upon which games you're watching. Um, but it hasn't been this, you know, overwhelming sort of, um, issue with the pitch clock that we've seen in every game you watch. It's been, you know, here and there anecdotally. And I, and I feel like it is something that they probably should tweak. And I do think that as the season goes on, we saw this in the minors too, they get a little bit better about kind of having feel for the moment of like, you know, you don't necessarily have to force it here in the ninth inning or the eighth inning in a big spot. It's okay. Like, you know, um, kind of letting that go. I know that people like to be very stringent, like, hey, what's what you got to do by the letter of the law and the rules. I, I do think that, you know, a, 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 a 2-0 pitch in the third inning is very different from, you know, a 3-2 pitch in the in the bottom of the eighth or the ninth. T- tying run on third. We'll, yeah, yeah we'll see some of that stuff. Yeah. I think that they're going to try to avoid that because ultimately – that reflects poorly on the pitch clock where I think it's doing its job, whether it's three or four seconds here and there in these big moments, we, we want to keep the people entertained until the big moments in the eighth and ninth inning where in, in close games where that's really where the entertainment value kind of exceeds any, any value we get of cutting off an extra two or three minutes at that point in time. So I do kind of hope that they, you know, I think umpires will get more feel for it, but then again, it's major league umpires versus minor league umpires. And, uh, you know, there are some major league umpires that do like to make themselves a bit yeah. of a story. So <laughs> and that, that is one thing I actually have been watching and, and something you're right. We didn't see in the minors as much because umpires and minors are very young. They're learning their craft. They're trying to work their way up. They, for the most part, don't have that big of egos. There's occasionally one or two, but for the most part, they don't. Major league umpires a little bit different. And we have seen some umpires be very, very aggressive about some things. Uh, the strike call on Jeff McNeil because Pete Alonzo was a little too slow getting back to first base. That shouldn't happen. And, and luckily, Major League Baseball, to its credit, came out immediately after and issued a statement saying this was the wrong call. This should not happen. They didn't try and defend it. They didn't try and say, oh, well, let, no, they recognized that was really silly. So at the very least, I think Major League Baseball is being responsive and honest about, OK, yes, this, this was a mistake. One thing that I, I thought was interesting we saw over the weekend Sandy Alcantara pitch a complete game, three hit shutout. Uh, game lasted one hour, 57 minutes. And, you know, it's funny. I didn't think about it before the season, but when it happened, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, this makes a lot of sense. When I mean, you have a guy who gets a lot of early count ground balls, works quickly. I mean, Sandy Alcantara is king of throwing nine innings and 100 pitches. You add a pitch clock on top of it. You add a Marlins offense that, for the most part, it's going to struggle to score. So you're going to have low scoring games. And, and Sandy Alcantara knows that better than anyone. It's amazing how many games that guy has pitched complete game, you know, one run allowed and taken the L or no decision. Um, is actually like, yeah, this actually makes perfect sense that Sandy Alcantara would be the guy you predict has a game where you look up and it's sub two hours. And it's not completely unprecedented. I remember actually being at a game, I, I say as a kid, which is now like, 20 plus years ago, which makes me feel super old. But I remember an Andy Ashby start where he was, you know, sub two hours. And I remember think reading about Bob Tewksbury starts, you know, sub two hours. Like, it's not like you have to go back to 1924 to find these. These were happening in the 90s and 2000s, which which don't feel that long ago to me, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tweeted out because, hey, I thought it was incredibly impressive that Sandy Alcantara did that. 
And the types of reactions were, were interesting. Some people were all about it and others really didn't like it. There was one point brought up I, I did think was interesting. I hadn't considered for the people who live far away, maybe they only go to one or two games a year and, you know, they splurge on tickets, you know, gas, food, everything. And it's, it's a big deal for them to go to a game and they get less than two hours of, of action in the stadium. And I hadn't really thought about that until someone mentioned it. And I can see there where it would be frustrating. And I, I don't know if there's a solution in the sense of, look, when you have a game time that's averaging two and a half hours, you will have games longer. You will have games shorter. You can't predict it. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, is, is there such thing as can a game be too short? And, and my, for my money, people say, oh, you know, it's less baseball. It's not less baseball. There's still 27 outs. It's just the dead times what's being cut out. But I can see from that perspective, maybe it can feel a little too short. Do you have any thoughts or, or concerns about that, how those have evolved? You know, I think it's funny because um, maybe I would have had a different opinion 10 to 15 years ago. Because we're media, I, you know, I do think that there's some bias here that I we get to the games early. We're there after the games and quite frequently when you're working on stories, whatever it is, um, if I'm traveling, like tonight, I'm going to drive over an hour to go to Hartford and then over an hour back home and then do my work once I get back at the house. I kind of like it with like the games are a little bit shorter. I know that last year I had one of the first sub two hour games um, in the minors, right? When they instilled the pitch clock on all levels. Um, and, you know, it was one of those things that like my wife and I kind of left the park. She would actually accompany me that day. It was when we were on vacation in Florida. And she was kind of like, we, we can go get something to eat now. And I kind of thought of it from like a, pan, a fan perspective there that, you know, if you're in a major city somewhere like Boston, wherever, you know, all these teams are major cities, but, and you have, you know, all these options to go eat. And typically when you're getting out of a game, the kitchens might be closed. You may not necessarily be able to do that. It almost gives an injection to sort of the, the nightlife and the things going around and the experience of the game. You can go down and get a couple of drinks. You can go to your baseball game. You get out. And, you know, let's say it's two and a half hours, sort of the standard time, or even two hours. It's like, it's a seven o'clock start. You could eat something at nine o'clock, go get another drink, do whatever. It, you get home a little bit earlier. I don't think it's all that bad. As you said, you're still getting the, the experience. If it's a gem of a pitch of a, of a game, you get a complete game shutout uh, or a complete game from, you know, a, a reigning Cy Young winner. I'm not going to complain about that as a baseball fan either, because that's the kind of thing is I'm going to remember that more than the, you know, the slow drudging 10 to eight slug fest, you know, that goes four and a half hours. And, you know, there's a ton of walks or whatever it is. I do think that that has some entertainment value. I'm not upset about it, but I also do understand that I'm probably a little biased and trying to think of myself and recent fan experiences. Um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily all that bad of a thing. I know that um, here in Worcester that it was sort of a, a boost to a lot of those bars and restaurants where they didn't have the pitch clock the first year that they opened in 2021, AAA Stadium, of course. And there's a lot of bars and restaurants and, and things to do around there. And it was really dead. So people would come beforehand and they would never get this rush where now because the games are a little bit quicker, they're getting sort of this post-game rush and they're, they're making some of those numbers that they were making on a Thursday, Friday night already. Um, I think, I, I think there's some benefits, you know, I could see being, in, you know, like I went, I want to go to a baseball game. I want to be there for three hours, whatever. That's fine. I, I just, I don't think it's probably that big of an issue. So I'm going to say no, that I don't think it can be too short. Um, we're not going to get an hour and 20 minute games here. You know? It's still longer than any movie you'd go to. And you're probably paying the same amount of money the way things cost in terms of concessions and movie tickets these days. So, yeah, again, I, I am sympathetic to that experience and I don't want to discount it. I just think that overall, again, no different than you can't predict who's going to be in the lineup. You know, it's a big deal in the NBA with load management. A lot of guys, you know, you go to see LeBron James and he's sitting out. It's frustrating, but you, you can't control it. It's no different than a baseball game. You don't ever really know who's going to be in the lineup when you buy your ticket ahead of time. And, you know, you never know if the game you're going to go to is two hours, two and a half hours, three hours, or, or three and a half hours. Those games still exist. They still will happen. We saw one on opening day. So uh, between the Blue Jays and Cardinals, so there's a little delay that played into that. But nonetheless, you just never know. And I, I don't think that's something that, you know, the pitch clock is evil because that happens now. It just it was kind of always true. All right, Jeff, 
I want to play a little game with you. We talk about small sample sizes and again, you never ever take them too seriously, but you know, there are times that you see some things that, you know, can be indicative of what's ahead. And I want to go through a couple teams with you again. We're one week into the season. Let, <laughs> let's draw some sweeping judgment, shall we? Um, <laughs> no, but I, I think there are some things that have occurred so far and it, it's worth talking about, you know, is this real? Is this a mirage? What, what should we expect the rest of the way? And so we're going to play a little game, Real or Mirage. We'll, we'll talk through a few teams and uh, see what we think. First up is the Rays. They are the lone undefeated team remaining in Major League Baseball. They're 6-0. and They're the highest scoring team in baseball. They're tied for the most home runs hit in Major League Baseball. They have a staff ERA of 2.0, 2.00, excuse me. And they've won every game by at least four runs. They have been dominant here the first week of the season. Is it real or is it a Mirage? You know, I'm probably I'm I think I, I put sort of I put real like mirage with a qualifier. Like I don't think that they are going to be the best team in major league baseball. I think they'd probably tell you that as well. Maybe not. Um you know, they're six and oh. The the expectations there are obviously way out of whack. And I know you're gonna mention this as well. The teams that they've played have not been very good. They probably played two of the worst, if not two of the three worst teams, you know, out, outside of probably the athletics uh, in, about the game right now, in, in the Tigers, uh, as well as the Nationals. Um, that's certainly played into this in terms of the number of runs that they've scored. I do think that there are some things that maybe were a little underrated about this team. I think it's a better lineup than people had anticipated. I think if we see the Wander Franco that we've seen early on in this season, where there has been some power gains, et cetera, it's, that's a big deal. Um, I think Isak Paredes kind of underperformed some of the underlying data and what his, his sort of true talent is in terms of what he can do offensively. Um, I think Jose Siri is a really exciting young player. I guess he's not all that young any longer. He's 27, but, um, you know, hasn't had a ton of experience in the major leagues at this point. Um, I think he's a guy that, you know, is sort of a human highlight reel at points at times. He's got power. He's got speed, good center field defense. I do think it's a good team. I wouldn't say it's the best team in the division. And I certainly wouldn't say it's the best team in the American league or major league baseball. So I'm going to sort of put a mirage there with a qualifier. We do know this is a good organization. The pitching staff is pretty good. Um, they've made some changes in terms of the pitch mixes for a lot of these different guys that are in their rotation. And, you know, Jeffrey Springs has been you know, an absolute <laughs> huge W for them. He looked great the other day. I don't think he's going to do what he did in his first start every start. But I think he's going to continue to be a pretty good major league pitcher. We saw that last year over a bigger sample size. Um, I'm going Mirage. They've done this against the Tigers and Nationals, two of MLB's worst teams, and they're starting a three-game series against the A's on Friday. This team could be 9-0 and and look like <laughs> world beaters, but they're doing against the Tigers, Nationals, and A's. Then they follow up with four games against the Red Sox, who we'll talk about in a second. And I mean, the, the Rays could be 12-1 and and looking like world beaters, but again, you have to look at who they're playing. I'm with you. The Rays are a solid team. They won 86 games last year. I think they're probably going to be similar this year, 83, 84, 86. Maybe they can get to 87, 88. It's a really good pitching staff. Um, the offense you know, has some good players. They, they do a good job of putting guys in good positions to succeed. And they play clean baseball, which goes a long way. They do a lot of things well. I will say seeing Luke Rayleigh uh, kind of emerge with the Rays, is just perfect to me. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly the type of player the Rays will get. A guy, you know, who has some ability, you know, has some power, can play left field a little bit, but, you know, needs an opportunity and, and the matchups to be massaged a little bit. The Dodgers weren't going to be able to give him that. The Rays are. It's It was just kind of funny to me watching him hit homers back-to-back -back days. I'm like, yeah, this is actually a perfect – the Rays and Luke Rayleigh are a match made in heaven. That's exactly <laughs> the type of player they go get. Um, so they're fine, but, but they're not this world-beating team. You have to sure. look at who they've played. So I think we're in agreement on that. All right, Jeff, the Twins pitching staff currently leads the majors with a 1.90 ERA. Again, six games. I know I'm signing six games, but let's go with it. Um, what's really jumped out is the starting rotation. They've allowed just 19 hits and four runs and 33 and a third innings. Is the Twins pitching, particularly their starting pitching, how good they've been, real or a mirage? I'm going to say real. I don't think that it's necessarily um... – the best pitching staff in major league baseball. You know, I don't think we're going to see that, but it is a, it's a good deep staff of like number threes. Right. 
It's like they have five mid-rotation guys, maybe some guys that kind of border on that number two sort of status. But, you know, Pablo Lopez, Sonny Gray, Joe Ryan, who's much improved again this year in terms of his secondary, as we knew what the fastball was already. Tyler Molly, who I've always been a, been a fan of. Uh, and then Kenta Maeda, who looks like he dodged a bullet in terms of injury the other day. These are all starters that would be in the middle of a rotation on any competitive team, um, you know, in the league. So I do think they have a lot of good depth within that rotation right now. The thing that I worry about is if any of those guys do go down with injury, sort of who's the next man up? Do they have sort of the depth within their organization to replace guys like that and sort of keep keep things rolling? Um, you know, we look at some of the names that are sort of on their 40-man roster and in the minors, Bailey Ober, fine. Simeon Woods-Richardson, Jordan Balzovic, um, you know, Josh Louis Barlin. Uh, excuse me, what'd you say? Josh Winder. I think he's injured, though, isn't he? Oh, you're right. You're right. Yes. I think he's done the, 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 the had uh, shoulder surgery. So yeah, you're, you're correct. Oh, my bad. Been. Um, and then, uh, and like, you know, Brett Hendrick, uh, Matt Cantorino. Like, th- these are guys that are nice pieces. I think a lot of them are probably more like, long relievers or potential like future relievers um, just in terms of some of the health or even those guys, they don't necessarily have that depth. Now, not every team does have that depth, but typically teams that we, we would think about as the best pitching staffs in baseball have a true ace. You know, they have a Jacob DeGrom, they have, you know, a Clayton Kershaw when he was at his peak, you know, a, a Scherzer, whoever that might be, though Scherzer hasn't pitched like one as of yet. So I think that is a little bit of a concern for me, but I do think this is going to be a team that, if they finish in the top 10, a bunch of different metrics in terms of pitching, um, it's not going to shock me. I think that this is legitimately improved team. And a big part of that is the, is the pitching staff has improved. Even the guys that were there already have improved and they've obviously added guys like Lopez, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, you've basically said everything I was going to say. I, I think it's real. Again, they're not going to lead the majors in the RA, but this is a good rotation. Again, five really quality starters. And I'm glad you brought up the bullpen. You know, Jorge Lopez really struggled after he came over in the trade last year. Um, talked to some people. The Twins kind of made the mistake of trying to fix a guy who wasn't broken. They try, tried to tweak some things, change some things. It's like, why? Just let him do what he does. It's working fine. Um, we, we see that sometimes with analytics-heavy teams. They they think they can improve something that doesn't need improving, and they end up making things worse. Um, you know, does Lang Jorge Lopez be himself? He's looked good early, three scoreless appearances. You know, Jorge Alcala is a, a good arm, someone that I think is is definitely mm-hmm. a solid relief piece. You know, he's looked good early as well. Again, small samples we're talking about, but the early reviews have been good. The early looks have been good. And Joan Durant is one of the best young relief pitchers in baseball. So I think you have a, a really good group of, of starters. You know, this five-man rotation is really good, one through five. And you have some good relievers. I, I wouldn't totally trust Emilio Pagan in high leverage anymore, but if he's your sixth inning guy, if – he ends up pitching that role for them. I think they're fine. Again, there's 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 reason here to believe this staff can be good throughout the course of the year. And you mentioned, you know, some of their depth guys maybe aren't the sexiest in the world, but they're perfectly fine as depth guys. You know, if any of them have to go make 20 starts, it's probably not great. But, you know, if a few of them are making, you know, five to seven, one of them maybe has to make 12, you're okay. So I, I think, again, I think this is real in the sense that it's a good staff that will be one of the best in baseball. Um, obviously, they're certainly not going to have a sub two ERA over the course of the year and, and be number one. All right, Jeff, the next one is the Red Sox. Um, this is sort of on the negative side now. They're two and four. Their starters have an 8.53 ERA through these first six games. They were just swept by the Pirates. Is this real or a mirage how poorly they've played so far? I think it's real. And I think anybody that you've talked to that follows this team, I, you know, I obviously live in this marketplace. Um, there were real questions coming into the year. I think if you just looked at the lineup, you could probably sort of convince yourself that, Hey, these guys can hit and they can, I, I don't think it is a, it's not a bad lineup at all. There's, there's plenty of bats in there. Yoshida has been sort of a welcome surprise. I think, you know, Cassis is solid. You still got Raphael Devers there. Justin Turner, just from an offensive standpoint is fine. But what we sort of have here is a lot of guys that are like potential DHs at this point in their career. There's not really any standout defenders besides maybe Adam Duvall. And he's kind of out of position there in center field. If you have him, you know, in left field, I think like, okay, like that's a standout left fielder, especially in Fenway. He's going to handle that. No problems at all. Um, But the defense has been bad. The pitching staff is atrocious. 
I mean, you look at everything, you know, we don't know what we're going to get from Chris Sale at this point. It's been four years since he's really been healthy. 2018, I think, was the last time we actually saw a truly healthy Chris Sale. And that wasn't even at the end of the season, but sort of that first half. Um, Kluber at this point is 37 years old. I know he pitched really well the other day. He's fine if he's your number five. If he's your opening day starter, that really scares me. Tanner Hawk has just never been able to cut it in the minors or in the majors now as a starting pitcher. I've never been that enamored with Cutter Crawford. I know there are some folks there out in the internet world that were really hyping him up as a potential sleeper. It really? didn't look Cutter Crawford was a that's I could have told you that wasn't gonna work. I could have told you. Yeah, that exactly. I, <laughs> I was trying to be nice, but yeah, exactly. And yeah, then Nick no. Pavetta has been, you know, will Nick Pavetta have like a five-game stretch this year where he looks great? Sure. That happens with Nick Pavetta every single season. We've seen it time and time again. But the other 20 plus starts, it is an absolute crapshoot as to what you're gonna get out there. And, you know, I think the back end of their bullpen is fine. You know, I do like guys like Chris Martin. I'm fine with Kenley Jensen if you sign him as a closer. Um, you know, John Schribner or Schriver is is fine, but there's a lot of other options there that I have some major questions about. We saw Ryan Brazier really getting attacked by the pitch clock when the Orioles were in town in the opening series because he was waiting until the last possible second to get rid of the ball and was putting his catcher in a really bad position because it was really easy to time him up and then just sort of tee off on him. He's a guy that I know locally has gotten uh, or Bloom has gotten a lot of flack for some of the guys that he let walk in the Rule 5 draft and didn't protect um, versus Brazier, who is a guy where people are like, that's a pretty replaceable reliever. Why is this still on the 26-man roster, let alone the 40? So My, my guy for that is Caleb Ort. Um, yeah. Can't, I, like can't, I mean, that's that's not a guy you really want on your major league roster, uh, just to be frank. And, and the, the performance has borne that out. Look, th- this is real. This is a bad pitching staff playing in front of a bad defense. Um, you know, I wrote about as part of our bold predictions, I, I wrote it that the Red Sox were going to really, really struggle with run prevention this year. And we're seeing that bear out. I don't see a path to it getting better. Um, you know, again, could some of their pitchers, you know, make a tweak here or there and, and do something and, and be, be better in the, and sure, maybe a little bit, but they're still playing in front of what, what is going to be one of the worst defenses um, in major league baseball. And, it, this would not surprise me if we look up at the end of the year and the Red Sox are 28th in the majors in, in team ERA. And, and also among the major league readers, major league leaders in most unearned runs allowed. Um, again, I, I just, I, I think this is real. I don't see it getting better without, you know, again, unless they sell the deadline and trade a bunch of their veterans and bring up younger, more athletic guys who are better defenders, but then you're trading off the offensive productions. It's not like that will suddenly fix all their problems. I think the struggles are real and and this could be a long season. Jeff, moving back to the positive side, we have the Brewers. Um, This is a team that has always been very, very good at developing pitching. They have been an offensive juggernaut so far, again, six games, Uh, but they have scored 38 runs in six games. They're among major leaders in average, on base percentage, uh, slugging percentage. They just swept the Mets, beating them 9-0, 10-0, and 7-6 putting up big run totals. They hit Max Scherzer around. Is the Brewers offense so far real or a mirage? Um, you know, I'm probably going to go mirage on this one. I, I think it's a really solid offense. I think they've absolutely improved this year. I think the injection of young talent has been big. Um, Terang has looked good. Um, Garrett Mitchell looks like he's sort of maybe figured out how to lift the ball. And that's not just this early sort of return over the first week, but he was doing it in spring training as well. If that continues, I think that's a big development for them because that's really the missing piece that we've always had with Mitchell. It's like the raw power is there, but he hits everything into the ground. So if he can do that, he can provide good defense. You know, Joey Weimer is a good player and we're sort of seeing that bear out as well. Sal Frelick is sort of waiting in the wings as well. Um, I think it will be a, a good offense, you know, I don't know if it's going to be a top 10 offense overall, um, but I do think it'll be in the, the top half. It's just like what we've seen over the first couple of games, I don't expect to repeat. They're going to slump at some point. Um, and, you know, there's 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 a lack of like a true offensive superstar here. I like Rowdy Tellez. You know, I think that Christian Yellick is fine, um, but he's not what he was a few years ago. 
And there's some offenses that are going to start to start to wake up as, as it gets a little bit warmer here. And, you know, I think the Brewers will just sort of be middle of the pack, um, which is fine. You know, their pitching staff has been pretty good. Um, and we've seen that over the last couple of years, though. Corbin Burns hasn't been all that great to begin with. I think, you know, some of that stuff will sort of pass and we'll, we'll see, like, they're a well-balanced team. I don't necessarily think they're going to be this offensive juggernaut, though. Yeah, I, I'm going to go real-ish. Um this is a team that has absolutely benefited from the injection of youth. And I think that is real in the sense of these guys are talented. Bryce Terang, Garrett Mitchell, Joey Weimer. It's a very real thing. Get that injection of energy and youth. And, you know, they're off to hot starts, all three of them. Um, these are very young hitters. The league will adjust to them. There will be points where they slump. And, you know, the Brewers offense, what will slump with them. Um, but you mentioned as well, they have self-relic, maybe Jackson Shiro. He's starting in double A. In theory, he is in striking distance. So I, I think they have enough, you know, young guys they can bring up to provide just that spark if they need. And I think the early signs are this offense has a chance to be better than it was last. This was not a good offense last year. It, it just was not. Um, now it has a chance to be okay. Again, will it be... What it's been over the course of a full season, no. Will it be a top 10 offense in terms of runs scored by the end of the year? That would surprise me. But could it be 12th, 13th? Yeah. And with the pitching staff they have, that's more than enough. I actually think the addition that has been most impactful that I think might be most sustainable is Brian Anderson. Brian Anderson was a very, very good player with the Marlins. And then he got hurt. He had two seasons of injuries, really struggled. They let him go. But if you ever just sat and watched Brian Anderson play, this was a good player, good hitter, good defender in the, in the outfield as, you know, play third base. Like, again, not a great player. But it's a good player. I, I remember when the Brewers picked him up thinking that's a sneaky good addition. And so far it's borne out. He's been a, on fire. I mean, he leads the majors, 10 RBIs so far. I mean, he's mm -hmm. nine for 18 with three homers and 10 RBIs to start the season with uh, nearly as many walks as strikeouts. Obviously, he's not going to hit 500 and lead the majors <laughs> in RBIs over the course of the year. But, I mean, he's, he's a good player. And I think that was a really good under-the-radar addition. Again, just the perfect – is the perfect kind of small market type of addition you want to see, right? Hey, who's a guy we know is talented – but maybe he's had injuries or, you know, was in a bad situation. And, and we believe in the talent, even if maybe the last two years or so, the performance hasn't been there. Brian Anderson fit that to a T. And I, I think that was just a really good pickup by the Brewers. And that's one I think will give them, as long as he stays healthy, because that has been an issue the last couple of years. That will be an addition that I do think will bear fruit over the course of the season. Where again, Terang, you know, Weimer, you know, all these young guys, Mitchell, they're certainly talented. We certainly believe in them. Trang and Weimer are top 100 types. Mitchell has been top 100 type. Um, you know, they're just young guys. There will be ups and downs. There will be peaks and valleys. The league will adjust to them. They're going to have to make that counter adjustment. We'll see how much of it's sustainable. But I do think the Brewers offense will be better if not this good. Jeff, so far we've agreed on everything. Uh, I know we're going to disagree on this one because uh, we uh, wrote it out. The <laughs> Phillies. The defending National League champions are off to a one in five start. And here's what's notable. They have the worst run differential in baseball. Not the Nationals, not the A's, not the Pirates. These teams who we know are not even trying. The Phillies do. Again, six games. Take it for what it's worth. How bad the Phillies have been? Is this real or a mirage? I do think it's a bit of a mirage. Um they're one and five. They've been a really bad team. I think there are major questions outside of their top two starters with Aranola and Zach Wheeler. I'm not the biggest fan of, of Taiwan Walker. Um, he looks good in spurts in every start that I watch and then sort of has big innings. It's kind of what bore out the other day. Um, not a huge fan of, of Bailey Falter. Um, he's fine if he's your number five. And the fact that they have Matt Strom in the starting lineup, um, I haven't thought about Matt Strom as a starter. Uh, I don't think since he was first coming up with like, the Padres years ago, which Royal, is at Royal. Royals. Love with the Royals. By the time he went well, to the, the Padres, Royals and then the Padres, yeah. I think had him in the rotation back in like 16 or 17. And, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, that's not great for a team that's spending as much money as they have. Sure. They've had some injuries, but there's just a lack of depth here. You know, you lose Ranger Suarez and it's like, I understand, you know, Andrew Painter, whatever, the fact that you don't have even 
a number five guy that you can bring up and you're kind of starting this sort of long man reliever. That's not a great look. Granted, it's early in the season. I do think things will get better just simply from the offensive standpoint. This is a, this is a pretty good offense, even without Reese Hoskins. We're going to see um, Bryce Harper's probably going to be back in June. It sounds like he's sort of a little bit ahead of schedule. Um, once Harper is back, I think that he's steal a phrase from Reggie Jackson. He's sort of the, star, the straw that stirs the drink here with you know, <laughs> Turner, Schwarber, Real Muto. Um, you know, Nick Castellanos is still something, I suppose. Uh, Alec Baum. I, I don't dislike this team. I could see them getting going, you know, in the summer, things get warmer, they get back Harper. It's really just a matter of, can they make a move to add another starter? Um, because I think they badly sort of need some starting depth there behind the two big guns, the two aces and Nola and Wheeler, and you need Wheeler to stay healthy. Yeah, I, I'm going to go it's real-ish just because, and we see this often, team after a deep postseason run, especially when they really have to ride top two starters, there's a bit of a hangover effect. Um, we see the fatigue carry over into the next season, and, and I think you look at you know how hard they had to ride Aaron Nola and Zach Wheeler to get where they got last year to pitch deep into October. And it was even November with the delayed schedule due to the lockout. And, you know, there's there's a there's a hangover effect there. There's there's some carryover effect there. And it's it's tough, you know, not having Bryce Harper for half the year, losing Reese Hoskins for, for the entire season, the torn ACL. I think this team, they will not be the worst team in baseball. They will not finish here at the worst run differential in baseball. This is not going to be as bad as it's been, but mm -hmm. I think there's a real chance this team finishes 77 and 85, you know, just a, a season where, you know, their top two guys are just never quite able to hit that peak form. They lack the starting pitching depth. And, and as you've talked about, you know, this offense, there's still some good players in here, but you know, with the Hoskins injury, you, you know, the way you have to move it around, you're still probably going to give a full season's worth of at-bats to Jake Cave. You know, Derek Hall is still going to get half a season's worth of at-bats for you as a starter. It's, it's not ideal. It's not great. And, and so I think for the Phillies, I think the struggles are real. It won't be this bad the whole season. And the other thing is there's been some really bad base running, which, you know, one of the things that really, really hurt the Phillies under Joe Girardi was just fundamentally, they were horrible. It was mainly looked at defensively and deservedly so. And some of it was the guys they had playing positions they shouldn't have, you know, been out there. But even just from a fundamental perspective, it was pretty bad. And we've seen some really bad base running early. Again, maybe it's just early season. It'll get in the groove and it'll go away. But something to watch because um, that's something that has really hurt the Phillies in the past, the, the base running defense just being fundamentally sound. So we'll see what happens. All right, Jeff. That is all we've got for the major league season. We've uh, gone 40 minutes into the podcast. We still got to preview what's happening in the minors now that double A, high and low A are opening. We're going to do that right here after we take a quick break. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed. If you need to hire, you need indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right. Welcome back to the Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer here with Jeff Ponce. Jeff, before the break, we reviewed the first week of Major League Baseball. 
game times with the pitch clock, some things we're watching, what tweaks we make, and, and what teams we believe in or not. Now it's time to get into the minors. AAA opened on March 31st. They've been going for a, a little bit now, five days in. Double A, high A, low A are all opening today, tonight. We will have baseball at every full season level beginning tonight. I want to look ahead at what is in earnest kind of you know the start of, of the full minor league season. Before we dive into double A, high A, low A, we do have to talk about triple A. Again, five days in, you don't want to draw any conclusions. Uh, but there are some things that are, are noteworthy, eyebrow raising that have happened already. I want to ask you, what is the biggest thing that has caught your eye so far triple a early in the season yeah um you know i think it's been it's obviously been a, a pretty short sample size at this point um but one player that i've kind of kept an eye on that's been popping is von grisham i think everyone was a little bit surprised you know i, I was a little shocked that he was demoted um i don't think anybody necessarily expected him to be the starting I didn't expect him, like, they, they made this experiment with him going to shortstop. Um, I was a little surprised by that. Uh, you know, I guess Orlando Garcia's defense is back again after it was down for a while. Fine. Um, he's been hitting the crap out of the ball again. Uh, you know, he's certainly proven that, you know, over the first week, at least for me, this the guy looks like a major league player um, that should be up, you know, with the major league team. That's now playing for triple A. He's hitting 429, 538, 857. Um, you know, I know Dylan's run his his Robo Scout tool just for the, the first five games of the season. He was number one in terms of triple A. Uh I, I just I'm I'm shocked that this guy they couldn't figure out a way to get this guy onto the roster. So um, you know, my first one is is Von Grisham. So there you go. I think for me, what I have taken note of is Tyler Soderstrom is catching primarily in Las Vegas. Last year, we saw him play more games at first base than behind the plate. And a lot of that was due to a thumb injury he suffered, but it was also kind of the general sense was, okay, this is when the conversion is happening. There's long been a belief that he's going to end up at first base. And, you know, this seemed like, okay, this was going to grease the wheels a little bit, had the thumb injury, got more time at first base. You know, I think it's reasonable to expect we would see him start to play first base you know, primarily maybe catch a little bit, but first base would become his primary position. And early on, that's not been the case in Las Vegas. Uh, three of his first four games, he's been behind the plate, uh, played one game at first base. So, you know, the A's are sticking with it. And look, Tyler Soderstrom can hit. He can absolutely hit. I, I, I've i repeated this over and over and over again. I think people focusing on the profile are missing the point. This guy's going to hit more than enough to be an all-star as a first baseman. Uh, it's a special, special, special bat. If you can stay behind the plate, even better, but um, it, there's not really a profile issue here. He's going to profile no matter what. I think the fact that the A's are continuing to run him out as a catcher, letting him get the reps, catching higher-level pitching, maybe there's still a chance here. Again, we'll see. Probably not based on just kind of the general feedback and, and how the defense has progressed or not progressed. But it's notable to me. And they're not saying, okay, just go play first base now. They're still letting him catch primarily. And I'm going to be watching that just to see, okay, how does he progress? How does this kind of develop? Because I'm on record. I'm I'm a lesser believer in Shea Langoliers, especially offensively. I, I don't think that's your long-term solution if, if you want to be a contender again. If Tyler Soderstrom proves he can stay behind the plate, that is the type of guy you can win a championship with. I, I believe that at either position, catcher first base, but if he can stick behind the plate and if he shows he's able to catch these higher level arms and also handle the grind of Las Vegas where A, it gets really, really hot in the summers and B, just the mental, the psychologist you have to play as a catcher in the PCL when you're coaxing pitchers through Las Vegas and Albuquerque and Salt Lake and El Paso. It's going to be really interesting to see. So, so that's what I'm watching in AAA. All right, Jeff. Now we're getting down to double A, high A, low A. Every uh, again opens tonight. Ninety teams all across America. A lot of players making their professional debuts. A lot of players making the jump from you know A ball to double A, seeing if they can make that jump and, and prove they are real prospects. There's a lot to look for this year. Macro level view, taking a step back. What's the number one thing you're going to be watching 
in the minors this year beyond beyond triple a now double a high low air opening up what's the number one thing you're going to be watching in the rest of the minors this season uh yeah i think it's just going to be um you know probably it's just kind of what it is with me always but just sort of what do these pitchers look like coming out of the draft um you know what do those arms look like in terms of you know where guys were drafted versus what we actually see um it, it's just such a crapshoot from year to year you know we had guys like jack Leiter that went incredibly high last year or a couple of years ago that haven't necessarily lived up to the hype there's been guys that got drafted much later like a bryce miller um so that's really what i'm always sort of keeping my eyes eyes out for are you know how do these guys sort of hit the ground running who breaks out who's maybe added another pitch um added some velocity that's you know i always kind of look at it from a player level more so than like the the bigger picture because it's just sort of how i am um but, but I mean, that's, that's I a understand. bigger picture you know the entire draft class of pitchers seeing who takes steps forward and you're right pitchers are notoriously tricky to evaluate and there's a lot of guys who look one way in college and come out and get into a pro system and, and things can take big leaps in a short time or and also the other way they can regress in a major way in a short time. We see that pretty consistently. So I, I think it counts as a big picture thing. Don't don't shortchange yourself there. You're able to think big. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm always I'm always sort of looking at the pictures just because I think that, you know, what we see in pro ball is where like the rubber meets the road. Um, yeah. you know, and and there's just so many wild evaluations out there. And um, you even talk to folks that are on the amateur side and you'll get some pretty I think you get much more disagreement when it comes to the pitchers than you do with the hitters. We kind of know what they can do. We know what the skills are. It's just maybe a little bit cleaner to, I won't say easier, but I think it's a little bit cleaner to evaluate hitters. So um, that's always what I'm looking at is just seeing how these guys in the first five or six rounds really look. And if there's anybody that breaks out uh, from outside of that sort of top round group. I think for me, I shouldn't say I think for me, I know for me, the number one thing I'm going to be watching is the quality of baseball in low A. Coming out of the pandemic, so you had you know, you had guys who hadn't played in a lot of cases for a year or longer. And with minor league reorganization, eliminating short season levels, you know, those two things combined made the quality of baseball low A across the country in 2021 borderline unwatchable. And you had a lot of players again quoting scouts here not not i agree with this assessment but quoting scouts here who were saying you know it's not like these guys are not prospects these are guys who should not be playing professional baseball the quality of play at low a coming out of the pandemic in 2020 was atrocious the pitching and the defense in particular were absolutely horrendous and and a lot of it was because again you had the compounding factors of Guys who hadn't played in a year, year and a half, and guys being put at a level they really weren't ready for. They didn't have the preparation to be at that level. And also teams had to recalibrate. What does it mean to be at low A? What does low A baseball look like now? They don't have short season. And they didn't know the answer. It was a lot of throwing things against the wall and seeing what stuck. And it was really, really awful in 2021. In 2022, frankly, was not that much better. The defense at times was a little crisper. Because again, you know, reps guys a little bit, you know, again, they're not coming off of sitting for a year and a half. They're they've been in game situations, they're up to game speed. But the pitching, especially in the California league, was awful. You had a mix of guys who were throwing 89, 91 flat fastballs with no secondaries, or guys throwing 96, 98 with no idea where it was going. We talked about it. I was at a game last year where a team hit eight batters. You don't see that in college baseball let alone professional baseball low a the last years has been really really horrible and evaluators and teams across the game have had to recalibrate again low a you always 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 wanted to kind of be cautious about it take the under even when low a was quote unquote you know better pre-pandemic you still had games where you'd see a guy throw i'm not kidding i saw kyle cody open a game with 47 straight fastballs did not throw a breaking ball because he's just trying to work on his fastball command. You know, that doesn't really tell you what a hitter can or can't do because you never see, can he read a breaking ball? Can he, does he have pitch recognition, strikes on discipline? Can he recognize spin? We don't know. 
and defenses were always a little rough. So you always wanted to be cautious with low A to begin with. You know, oh, this guy hit 330 in low A. Yeah, and it's impressive. You give him credit for it. But there's a lot of balls he hit that would have been turned into outs at higher double A, and he was facing guys throwing. I saw 87 the last two years. I want to see if now, two years post-pandemic and minor league reorganization, if the quality of baseball at low A has improved in terms of quality of the pitching, the quality of the defense, now that teams have been able to calibrate a little bit, okay, this is what the baseball at that level will look like now post-reorganization. Here's the developmental steps guys need to take in order to be ready for this level. And again, just guys having played consistently now for for two straight years. That's what I'm be watching for because low A the caliber of baseball has been so low that I don't want to say you can't make projections on it because you have to. That that's your job, but you need to be extremely cautious about how much you're putting into how a guy looks in low A because the caliber of competition they're facing is really, really, really bad. And I'm going to be looking to see if that improves this year. I hope it does. I can tell you right now, every team hopes it does because they've talked about this. Like, you know, talk about Jordan Lawler. Everyone thought he was good last year. I thought he was really good last year. You know, the industry thought he was good last year. You could see the tools. You could see the electricity. You saw all the things to like, but even they were like, yeah, but you can't bite until he goes to high A because who he's playing is just so atrocious. Even for the top, top guys, you couldn't pull the trigger on anyone. And I think seeing if you can get a little bit higher quality of play so that maybe you could be a little more convicted and just feel a little better about, yeah, I th- I, I think this will play at higher levels because it's been so, so, so bad the last two years. Teams haven't been able to do it. I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with scouting directors and GMs and assistant GMs about it. They acknowledge it. They know it. They hate it as much as, as anyone. So um, that's what I'm going to be looking for here as we move into 2023. Jeff, one final question before we wrap up. Who are some players that you are really, really intrigued to see this upcoming season? Sure. Um, I mentioned a couple that I'll probably pull from here. I'm going to, I'm going to refrain from any, Cooper Jerpy talk. Uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I think it's a couple of hitters. One is Xavier Isaac, um, which I'm kind of going back on what I said before. Later, later first rounder last year, there was sort of split opinions on him within the industry. Um, very split. There were yeah. some, there very some folks that saw him that thought he was great. Other folks are a little bit more questionable. It is a high school first base profile, which isn't necessarily one that has the best track record of success over the, over the years. Um, but there's tons of power here. I think he's a really interesting player to follow. Um, so I'm really interested to see what Xavier Isaac does, um, you know, over the the course of this season and what we see. Um, the other one is Josue Paula. I've talked about him quite a bit. Um, I think he's a really interesting, intriguing player. I've gotten great feedback from folks that are in the Dominican Republic. I've gotten some great feedback from folks that were around just in terms of doing some athletic testing, et cetera, before the draft. And Josh Norris, if you haven't read that, go check out his uh, 50 prospects uh, that were making waves in the backfield or, you know, that impressed scouts throughout the, throughout spring training. I guess technically the name of it, but it's really sort of a backfield-focused article. Um, he got some great feedback there as well. This could be an impact player. So DePaula is one that uh, I find – Really intriguing, really interesting, and it seems like this Dodgers sort of development dynasty, I'll call it, just keeps on rolling. It seems like they have more and more players and they've, you know, than they've had even in years. And uh, that's kind of crazy to say because they've had such success in terms of developing pretty good major leaguers, um, both on the positional side and with pitching. So those are two guys that really have piqued my interest that I'm, I'm going to be sort of keying in on. Uh, tonight I have another one, which is with Heston Kerstad where I'm really excited to see what Kerstad with a full healthy season can do. He's had a really long road to get here. I know that we've had some great reports and looked really good in spring training when he was with the, the big league club. So um, I'm excited for Kerstad just in a personal level with, you know, all the sort of trials and tribulations he's had since getting drafted number two overall in the 2020 draft. And, you know, if he has a, a big season, he could sort of find his, himself in the picture there um, in this renaissance in Baltimore. Yeah, absolutely. Those are all great pick, picks. Uh, Kerstad especially won MVP of the Fall League, and uh, there's definitely a sense that that he's gonna hit. Um, you know, see what the defense, how that improves, especially you know, getting a full healthy season. But 
um, showed some good things. The power is very, very real. It'd be really, really interesting to see what he's able to do. Like you said, that full healthy season. Uh, two young guys for me that I'm just really curious to see. Uh, first and foremost is Ethan Salas with the Padres, uh, the top player in the international class. The Padres had been ecstatic about him for years, you know, even before his official signing, because look, we all know agreements are made very, very early. And again, everything that has been said about him has so far borne out to be true. He's 16 years old and he's catching big league pitchers in camp and making it look easy. He's comfortable catching Joe Musgrove. It's just so smooth and quiet and and polished back there defensively and at the plate. I mean, he's a real threat there too. I think just looking at him, you would never guess he's 16 and talking to him. He's fluent in English, super, super mature kid. I mean, he has a, he's, he's not going to open at low A like Elsinore, but he has a chance to be in like Elsinore this year as a 16 year old, which is crazy, but it speaks to his physical ability and mental maturity. I mean, 16 years old in full season ball is crazy no matter what, especially as a catcher. It's, it's pretty remarkable and, and rare to say the least. So, Seeing what Ethan Salas is able to do, because again, he's looked great so far. Again, it's it's camp though. You know, getting out the grind of a full season, playing every single day, nine innings, that's a very, very different challenge. And um, seeing what he's able to do this year, I, I'm very, very, very intrigued by Ethan Salas. And also Drew Jones. He was the second overall pick in the draft last year. Uh, we had him at Baseball America as the number one player in the draft class. Uh, we got to see Jackson Holiday make his de- debut last year, and he performed and impressed a lot of people in a very short time. We didn't get that opportunity with Drew Jones. He suffered a torn labrum, taking his first batting practice with the D-backs, uh, had surgery. He's going to make his professional debut tonight uh, when Visalia plays like Elson, or I'll be down there for it. Again, just seeing what he looks like. He obviously came into the draft uh, with a lot of name recognition, being Andrew Jones's son, and you know a, a lot of... I don't want to call it hype because he he earned it. He showed tremendous talent on the field as an amateur. And so just seeing now what he looks like coming off of surgery, getting into pro ball, uh, that that's the other guy. I'm just really intrigued to see this year and what he looks like. And I'll get a chance tonight with Jones and uh, maybe Salas later on this year. Yeah, those are good ones as well. Um, you know, definitely players I'm excited to see. Uh, Salas for sure, and absolutely Drew Jones, which you're going to get some firsthand looks tonight. So congratulations on that. <laughs> yeah, I have seen him before in, in showcases. And uh, funny enough, it's been one of those things, whenever I'm in the park, he, he hasn't seemed to do a whole lot. And then anytime I'm not there, he seems to go off. So I'm hoping that luck changes tonight because uh, in the past when I've seen him, it, it hasn't been his best performances. But obviously, there's a lot of talent in there. So I'm hoping to see uh, the best version of Drew Jones for the first time myself. Jeff, any final thoughts here as we wrap up? No. If there's any MILB prop bets, I guess stay away from uh, Drew Jones' two-plus hits if Kyle's in the ballpark. (laughs) So (laughs) sort of that. But, no, I'm excited to have all the levels going. AAA is fine. It's fine. But what really excites me is the lower levels, is seeing a lot of these players for the first time, seeing the development. My favorite level to watch just in terms of quality of play and a mix of prospects and all that sort of stuff is typically double a games um so i'm excited to get back to that tonight and tune into milb tv once i get back from the park and watch some more baseball but uh, excited to get out and see some real games and uh have a real series uh for the first time in you know i guess six to seven months you know because unlike what josh norris says it's just the fall league just isn't quite the same it's just not quite the same as those, you know, uh, double A games or, you know, I'll get some low A games actually next week as well. I'm in Florida. Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead and give Jeff a follow. Uh, he'll be out at Hartford tonight. Uh, give me a follow as well. I'll be out at Lake Elsinore, Lake Elsinore, Visalia. And this is the start of a full season's worth of minor league coverage coming your way here at Baseball America from coast to coast. Again, I'm in LA, Jeff's in Boston. Uh, a lot of our crews down South and uh, North Carolina. We have people in DC. We, we have people everywhere and we're, we'll be traveling all over the country. So we'll have tons and tons and tons of great content coming to you for the minor league season. We have a lot on our website today. If you want to go check it out, Josh Norris's 50 players who impress scouts on the backfields. We have prospect position rankings for the year. We have an updated top 100 taking into account some graduations and some new players moving on. Uh, 
We've got tons and tons and tons of stuff here at BaseballAmerica.com. I encourage you to check it all out. And of course, magazine. There's lots of great stuff in there as well. Our minor league preview issue is on newsstands now, and we'll have continued minor league content throughout the 2023 season. It's a great time to subscribe. For Jeff Ponce, I'm Kyle Glazer. This has been another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Enjoy minor league opening day, everybody. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.